Yeah, so I didn't really have any good ideas for, like, what to do for this episode. I just figured we'd just kind of have, like, a shoot the shit episode. Sounds good. Yeah. yeah. You know, someone asked me, what, what's your topic? And I'm like, I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> Does it matter? We're just going to be talking. We're just <laughs> bullshitting and drinking beer. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers to that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I had two podcasts that I've done since our last one, mm-hmm. but neither of those were for Go Dig a Hole. I had uh, one on the Sprocket podcast. Um, they record here, actually, the time slot after us. Oh, okay. Every Thursday. And so that's why I couldn't snag, like, the more desirable uh, <laughs> <laughs> six to eight spot. Yeah, um, no worries. But, uh... It was funny. So I was in recording an episode for uh, the contrition mission is mm-hmm. a friend of Rose's. Rose was uh, yeah. on the tattoo episode. And uh, the contrition mission is, is a friend of hers. Uh, Carrie from Ireland does it. And it's a really funny format. It's supposed to be kind of like a confessional booth where you tell really embarrassing stories. And yeah. uh, it was just hilarious. Like it was just it was it was kind of a neat change of pace to just like talk like just totally raunchy bullshit and just laugh the whole time yeah uh because sometimes we get like really heavy and like i have to like think about things on in like a professional manner but instead it was like <laughs> i got to talk about the time like i saw one of my good friends like shit himself right in front of me and it was like <laughs> don't get to do that very often yeah. uh and uh yeah so it was funny timing because it was like as soon as i left the studio for that because like we ran right up against the the end of our time mm-hmm. um the guys from the sprocket podcast were just sitting outside with their bikes and yeah i was like oh hey yeah introduce myself to them and like i've listened to their podcast for a while and it's like really interesting it's mostly about biking around portland but it's like biking in general yeah and um they do some cool like outreach and advocacy and just kind of educational stuff so there was like nice. kind of a similar kind of mission like we do with this and so as we're talking they go do you ride a bike and i was like yeah i rode my bike here and they're like do you want to be on our show we don't have a guest (laughs) okay sure sure. yeah so i got roped into that and uh so it was just funny to kind of like keep the podcast brain fresh Mm -hmm. uh during our our uh, time off with conferences and travel and all that yeah nice well that's exciting i'm glad that happened because that's just like okay <laughs> let's do it like yeah keep going yeah Don't stop now it's fun yeah we've uh we have some really great ideas for the women in archaeology podcast we have some things lined up that uh, we haven't set dates for but we have a few guests on that will or that have volunteered to be our guinea pigs and nice <laughs> and join us um on some uh, tough topics, actually. Some of them are really fun. Um, we're hoping to do uh, an episode with a tipo from this uh, local area or from the state. So that'll that's something to look out for. Um, and we're going to be doing a heavier episode for the follow-up of the fallout of the SAA. Yeah, I listened couple. to the uh, SAA recap episode and it was really good. Uh, but yeah, like it's gotten so much worse (laughs) it's like the the incident that happened at saa was bad enough and then like watching them just keep stepping in the shit over and over again yeah 
and just falling on their face continually. It yeah. was like someone trying to walk on marbles. <laughs> like uh, the sticky bandits from uh, Home Alone. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's exactly, exactly what it was. Because, man, I'm just like, it's so... And granted, this is from an attendee who is vaguely active on social media. Hilariously, actually, the entirety of the conference, my phone had gone out. Uh-huh. So I intermittently had some messaging capability, but it would shut itself off periodically. So I wasn't making Twitter posts and stuff. Yeah. So it was mostly social media via everyone else's like via hearsay. So yeah. um, it wasn't until I got home and was able to like look at everything that had really kind of fallen out yeah but it was even without having that on hand all the time it was insane just the fact that it took almost a month after for people to have for an official statement to be made yeah like that's not even handling it that's like acknowledging the fact that it was an issue so that's something that was i mean i'll i don't want to necessarily jump off into that ugly pool but um yeah (laughs) it's definitely was it's interesting to see how it's played out so far um i think there's a little bit there, there are twinklings of hope um mostly due to uh joe watkins who's the current president um, and also just acknowledging and, and realizing how limited the power is for the SA president yeah. and how the, the structure works for the organization. Because it's always seemed like a weird black box, even being participatory in the organization as an interest group yeah. like chair. <clears throat> it's very black boxy. There are things you send thing people that you send things to and then it comes out the other side like. Um, there's one uh, project that I worked on that was more involved and we talked to a bunch of coordinators and even lawyers and such and that had to do with organizing stuff around the Smithsonian um, and a co uh, a joint project that we did Um, so that was like the most involved but that's like outside of the range of normal yeah so it's just really interesting um, especially with the new hire for um the i forget what her official title is but the basically the the manager the operations the person who like runs the company or runs the organization she's let, been there less than a year at this point yeah so i don't know she seems nice in a one-on-one situation but yeah she i think fell on her face a little bit and i feel bad for her but at the same time i'm like Come on. It was a fixable problem and... Like it could have been so easy. Yeah. Just to acknowledge it early on, people would have been far more satisfied with that. Absolutely. (laughs) Like anything would have been better than the shit show that happened. It's amazing. It, it really, and there's, there's so much to unpack too, that it's, it's good that, you know, like women in archaeology spent an episode kind of unpacking that and and giving a recap of of what was good about about the saas like the the tribal involvement was really good to hear um but yeah i guess i guess we could include this part in the podcast since we're rolling (laughs) Uh, like a quick summary without like unpacking the whole thing is um 
there was a professor at University of Alaska, Anchorage, David Yesner, who mm-hmm. um, was found guilty of um, sexually harassing and or assaulting, assaulting yeah. uh, nine of his students and was found guilty of, of Title IX violations. Um, he was fired from the University of Alaska, Anchorage, uh, banned from the American Anthropological Association. Well, no, he was banned from the campus and from attending any functions that involved students. Right. So, which implied the SAA. So the SAA did not do any official banning. The university had actually contacted the organization after they found out that he was there and was like, dude. He's not allowed. He's not supposed to be there. And they didn't do anything. Um, or it seems they didn't do anything, but they also didn't make any announcements that they were working on it, that even if they did end up banning him by Friday, because people hadn't seen him on Saturday, they saw him around a bit on Friday. Yeah. Um, if they did take action, the fact that they could have said, we have taken action on a particular issue that has been of concern, like, yeah. it would have been... The part of it is, is it was so much of a distraction for not just the victims that were in attendance there, but also just to anyone who's experienced really intensive um, sexual harassment or especially assault. Yeah. Like to have, I mean, for one, anyone who has had those experiences in the field is kind of looking over their shoulder at any of these conferences to start with. Yeah. Secondly, to know that someone has been convicted and it's the black, most black and white case that you could probably have for the sparkly new uh, sexual harassment policy that SAA had just published and put in the front page of the program that year. Yeah, which we had mentioned in a, in a previous episode. I, I can't remember which episode it was. I feel like we've ripped it a few times, though, uh, where we've complained that the SAA policy really has no teeth. Yeah. Um, they don't want to be regulatory body. Right. They don't want to have any shoot a drop. Yeah. So. So he was there. Three of his victims were there. And because SAA refused to take action, it forced three of his victims to out themselves and kind of rehash the trauma mm-hmm. to basically make it their word against his that yeah this happened he was actually guilty of title nine and just like rehash the whole thing just so that saa could take action and saa took a very kind of legalistic approach to it where they were just kind of like okay well we have to have like everything everything fit into its proper place in order to really follow through with this and they made it like more drawn out than it had to be and like you said it was kind of this thing that took um about a month it took about a month for them to even make an official statement on it but in that month um the victims had you know uh, compiled kind of a body of evidence and then other board members uh and various committee and task force members uh have either resigned members have canceled their membership yeah um and so we've seen this kind of uh mass exodus from the organization because of their delayed actions and taking any sort of of leadership or response to this thing and then the statement that they released was just kind of like sorry not sorry yeah and um and we we should do better i'm like okay that's your role like we're putting you in that spot whether you like 
it or not, this is the role that you carry. This is, it's like the, you know, they're like, well, we just host and we provide a space. And it's like, okay, but when you provide a space, you are seen as the manager of that space. Right. Whether you want to be or not, that is the role that you, that is implied. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think, um, and there's several issues that can really be kind of swept up into this whole idea that the SAA should have more of a regulatory role or at least an accountability within the organization and its membership um, and to the membership itself. Um, and I know there was a petition that went around that Christina Kilgrove had put out for um, people to sign uh, to bring that up, yeah. to, to change the bylaws in the way that some of the organization functions because it's so like obscure there's it's hard to really kind of pull that out um and i mean granted it's not a huge organization it feels huge yeah it's the largest for archaeology but archaeology is tiny yeah like it's a very small community um and it's they don't make nearly as much money as people assume um i think they're published she was saying uh so christina had gone out and i this is total hearsay third party statement because um, I haven't gone in to verify this, but she had gone into and published a link for their tax returns as a 503C. Yeah. Um, and that one of the things that really kind of stood out, she's like, they made $2 million in a year. Oh my God. And I'm like, well, as far as an organization of that size that has, I think four or five permanent employees, that's not really that much right as far as it costs half a million dollars depending on the year uh sometimes more to run just the meeting right then you have salaries you have uh legal fees which they have not i think they need to pay more for their legal fees. yeah (laughs) because i think they need either better lawyers or to take one in more often yeah because i think it was like seven thousand dollars for 2018 or something like that which is relatively low it is extremely for low really any type of law so i mean yeah that's, you, you have to wonder how often they're engaging a lawyer at that at that rate yeah very very little in considering uh the sexual harassment task force and various other task forces that they have employed within the organization to try and come up with solutions to issues within the community there should have been more consultation because i mean honestly that is how much i paid for my child support lawyer like within the last several years yeah it is not that hard and it does not take that much time to rack up that bill i can guarantee you <laughs> right. like, yeah that is not very much consultation yeah. like for that level of an organization they need one on like they need to consult their lawyers more often for various things and to have a better relationship and on-call basis especially during the meeting yeah um i would think um but that's neither here nor there at this rate so we'll see how things start to come together if anything um but it's definitely put i think a fire under the membership to change the organization yeah from the inside um and i mean there are people who are like you know check you later i'll 
we'll see how this plays out. I may renew my membership. I may not. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of archaeologists, it's not worth being a member. Yeah. And I've I've had a few uh, folks reach out uh, on Instagram. Actually, I, I shared a, a meme that uh, Stephanie Helmhofer mm-hmm. uh, had. It was it was like a the the car doing a, a quick burnout to get off the exit ramp where it was like the it was like doing the right thing uh doing the absolute worst thing was the exit ramp and sa was the car doing the burnout to do the absolute worst thing uh yeah. and so like a few people reached out and they were like so no austin for you and i was like i don't know you know i i think in solidarity with the victims and in solidarity with the people who have resigned Mm-hmm. I think for me personally, that's no. Yeah. Um, I've I've talked to a few people about maybe going to Austin anyhow and having an unconference. Yeah. Since that tends to be what I end up doing anyhow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the SAA is just kind of like oh, yeah. my headphones just oh, okay. went out. My oh, there it is. Did yours yeah. buzz out too? Yeah. I wonder what's going on there. Uh. Yeah. Unconference. The, yeah, the unconference. Yeah, I end up like at the SAA, you know, if, if I'm um, not in the, the conference, like like usually in the vendor hall lately, um, then I tend to try and find meetings with people outside the conference. Yeah. You know, and it's like I love attending the, the, the sessions and the posters and all that. But, um, you know, you tend to do a lot more of the, the face-to-face networking yeah. outside the conference. Um, but it's also something like I harp on in a lot of episodes that in terms of kind of what is more beneficial to you in like a more direct and tangible way, I really feel that like you can really get the most bang for your buck out of local and regional conferences and professional organizations. And so like AOA is a, is a great example of that. Um, You know, you have this really great cross section of NWAC. Yeah. And NWAC. Um, oh, I just mean like in terms of a, a professional oh, okay. organization, like going AOA to the meetings great. and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, it's great because in AOA you have um, a cross section of CRM archaeologists, you've got federal archaeologists, state archaeologists, um, and a, a few academics from like PSU and U of yeah. O and yeah. all that. Um, and it's neat because there's really no pressure to like perform your your expertise in a field kind of like I, I feel like a lot of early career archaeologists feel that at SAA like there's a lot of pressure to be the expert right out of the gates and it's yeah. like uh AOA you know I haven't been to NWAC yet but um you know I've been to other regional conferences where you can find a mentor and actually get some face time with them mm-hmm. and uh kind of you know get a tip to a job you know as, as i'm sure you've had you yeah. know, quite a few tips to jobs and stuff and yeah one of the things i really appreciate about nwac and this i would assume goes to other regional conferences because it's also with gbac which is the other regional one that i go yeah. to which is the great basin anthropological conference um is the networking with uh and i don't know if this is specific to western u.s you can probably vouch for this more, but there's a heavy tribal presence in both cases. So um, getting to meet people that you hear of, that you read their work, um, and they're generally almost entirely always willing to engage if you're curious or have questions or whatnot. Um, And one of the things that 
I like is being able to put faces to names when you hear about someone because it's I mean like I mentioned before and we've said a gazillion times it's a small universe archaeology so you especially in your region you will hear names and hear things about them and then you can put at meet them or just put a face to a name if it's yeah. like okay that's the person I don't want to talk to <laughs> <laughs> or like wow that was a great talk like I've read all of his papers and um, that was one of my moments with uh, one of the few times I've seen Ken Ames speak actually yeah. uh, who passed recently and he was such a rock star of the region really he I really mean, was and that's where his work was amazing he's done a lot of stuff for the region in the northwest across from the plateau all the way through um, the gorge area and this uh, sort of Portland basin um, and has championed the uh, Chinook tribe um, yeah. bit as well which is a good cause and that's one of was one of his rallying points um, when because he'd been sick for a while so that was one of the things that he had asked is uh, to raise money for uh, the Chinook tribe because they're uh, not federally recognized if, as I understand Yeah, um, but they are the home tribe of Portland region, Vancouver region, right here. Yeah. So it's kind of like, how did that end up happening? <laughs> um, so it's 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 interesting. I mean, you know, there's a lot um, as far as tribal politics go. So that's uh, just the more I work in archaeology, the more I learn about it. It's fascinating to learn about the history that's under your feet, basically, yeah. and going on behind the scenes, and you don't know it until you're involved in it and thus the i made a comment at a recent conference that i was at the um the archaeology channel film festival and cultural conference so when i was there uh just a couple weeks ago i made a, a statement or one of the, the highlights in my presentation was that archaeology is a political act and that was one of the questions i got from the audience was how do I mean it's a political act? And I'm mm. like, well, let's, all right, let me get this soapbox out. <laughs> <laughs> Where should I start? Um, so basically my, uh, and my talk was followed up with Jessica Uquinto's talk, which was of course just reiterated what I, in a much better explanation and impact than what I had my answer. But, um, I was just like, well, you know, anywhere you do archaeology in the world, there is a local people who are a descendant community of the archaeology that you are digging. So it is, unless it is your own history, it's imperialistic to begin with, or colonial at, yeah. the, at the very least. Um, especially if you don't engage with that local community. And so there's a lot of assumptions being made that archaeologists and academics in general have the authority to go in, make the assumptions that they know best, interpret from the smattering of pieces that we can get to extrapolate what happened in the past, especially if you do not consult with people who have lived there and have an oral history that can be corroborated, that can be added to or complemented or 
anything or mm -hmm. even rebutted like in the case of british history there's a lot of stuff that's oral histories or legends in the archaeology that people think is related to it it's slightly different or like things have changed and a lot of it is realizing that may, this may have been a real person it may not have been it may just be circumstantial but it also can create a deeper connection to the past so sharing the work as an archaeologist with the descendant community can sort of bolster their ownership and confidence in their past mm -hmm. um, but also help get them involved in in writing it and uh, seeing what's out there and what isn't and um, it's not always going to match up I mean honestly a lot of it doesn't but you'd be I've well not I but there have been shocking moments that I haven't witnessed with people who think that oral history is not reliable and seeing collaborations of oral histories in uh, the Western US that match the physical evidence. So it's, it's really interesting to see like an obvious example that's often brought up is the story, well-known story of um, Crater Lake yeah in mount shasta that was witnessed people were here when that happened it was only seven thousand years ago yeah so that's a simple example um and there's several others uh and it's just really cool to to see and to learn about how those kind of play together um when you let them when tribes have more involvement and sometimes even control over the archaeology that's being done um grand ron <clears throat> The Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde have a program where um, some of the, their archaeologists actually investigate the roots of oral histories. So they'll go looking for things that are supposed to be in the landscape and may not be anymore. And so yeah. they'll go look for them and then they find it. And then it's kind of like, well, that is the coolest thing ever. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, and a lot of that has to do with Rivers Move. And, you know, it's yeah. it's neat to see... It, just little pieces like that and I think if we take that sort of um, thought process to other parts of the world we being archaeologists as a whole I think right. it would be really cool so. yeah that would be super cool and it's it's one of those interesting things like that kind of a perspective is is one that I don't know that that's really kind of the mainstream thought in archaeology or anthropology mm. is to embrace multivocality and embrace indigenous involvement. Um, you know, me personally, when I was in undergrad, you know, I, I never encountered, um, you know, uh, publications or, you know, lectures that were critical of anthropology as a discipline. It wasn't until mm -hmm. I was in grad school that we were reading critical theory and some of that critical theory was critical of anthropology itself. And yeah. um, also it was really helpful for me to take a class. Um, it was like the, I forget what the name of the class was, but it was, it was essentially the, the history of anthropological thought. Mm. And it just broke down the timeline of um, kind of prominent thinkers in, in the discipline and put them into the cultural context of mm -hmm where those kinds of perspectives came from that's pretty neat and so learning that anthropology was kind of a byproduct of 
imperialism was uh, that was news to me when I was in grad school. And I was <laughs> like, you know, like I, I had gone through undergrad, worked in CRM for several years and went went back to grad school. And then I was like, are we the baddies? Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> So, you know, it's one of those things that you really have to reckon with. And I think a lot of people aren't reckoning with it. And no. it's one of those things that it's, I think it's uplifting and optim. It, it makes me optimistic, at least to see that being a more prominent focus in mm -hmm. um, conferences where yeah. there are more and more papers about um, embracing indigenous perspectives and more and more kind of. I don't know what you would consider mainstream for anthropology, but I feel like it's it's becoming more mainstream to be critical of the discipline itself and kind of be like, well, if we're not going to stop anthropology altogether, then at least let's focus on some harm reduction. And mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, the 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 big mission now, I feel, is decolonization. Yeah. And there are some really great um, uh, folks who are working on that. Uh, Keisha Supernat is is one of them she's uh up in canada and she's very vocal about decolonization mm -hmm. and how you know one one of the things about decolonization that is it seems pretty obvious but it's difficult i think for to put into practice for a lot of anthropologists is that um you can't be a white person decolonizing you have to let indigenous people lead mm -hmm. and I'm probably not saying that very elegantly, but that's <laughs> in a nutshell, that's to sum up the, the, the kind of uh, discourse around decolonization is mm -hmm. um, it's, it's uh, to have white people leading decolonization is just a different flavor of the same thing. Yeah. I mean, the best way I like to look at decolonization from like the perspective of working generally as yeah. a person of Euro-American descent and things, um, <laughs> things. Um, is that the way that people of Euro-American descent or white archaeologists can really work on decolonization is to give the space and to invite in people of, in, of the descendant communities that they're working with. Like, there's a lot of people that are already kind of in it. They're doing the thing. And if they are wanting to change how they're doing archaeology, get people in. Get yeah. people involved. Like, have more um, indigenous students try and get involved with the tribe on more than just a consultation basis or yeah. even consult <laughs> <laughs> consult them do the consultation that's a start <laughs> you heard me midwest southeast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's uh, sort of my my input on that it, but yeah I mean the, ideally you have indigenous communities doing archaeology replacing or recreating archaeology or what we recognize as archaeology yeah um and there is um a program currently going on so um the confederated tribes of grand ronde that i mentioned earlier um along in 
Northwest Oregon, they actually have a field school that they run on uh, their land uh, in that area in conjunction with uh, University of Washington with Sarah Gonzalez out of there. And Dr. Gonzalez runs uh, in a joint, a partnership program, and she's indigenous herself um, with the Grenron and she has a relationship with them and has helped build this field school for archaeologists uh, there with the tribe. And a lot of it focuses on non-destructive or minimally destructive methods, um, ethnic, uh, ethnographic methods as well, consultation, becoming comfortable with tribes and tribal yeah. relations. Like, I remember when I learned about it, I'm like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like, I want to go do that. But yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that's something when people ask, uh, there's them and also Crow Canyon, Mm -hmm. um, who does a lot of work. And I think they were the first big field school uh, that really worked with um, setting up tribal relations. And I want to say that's in Arizona or... It's either New Arizona Mexico. or New Mexico. I, I can't, can't remember. remember which one. Southwest. It's yeah. in the Southwest. We'll just put it there. <laughs> it's in Canyon Sorry, Country. Sorry, guys. I love you all. <laughs> we're, we're being bad archaeologists right I now, know. not memorizing the, yeah, whatever. I went and stopped by their booth at the SAA, too. They were super sweet. Yeah. It was great. I got a sticker. I still have it. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't decided where I want to put it. It's, it's this, I collect the stickers from uh, all the different conferences and i've thought actually about taking a lot of those and putting them inside the books because i keep the the books and i mark those up while i'm there so i can because i refer to them fairly often because i can never remember if i read it in paper if i (laughs) saw it presented (laughs) in a poster or a paper um so it's like stuff i was interested in and then stuff i actually attended and any various other notes um and i yeah i use those all the time and occasionally so for anyone thinking about going to a conference, <laughs> circling back to the regional conferences we were talking about, um, going back and contacting people. It's like, this was an amazing talk. I just yes. had a um, a guy that's, I think he just finished or is about to finish his PhD. Um, and TJ Brown, out of, who was a student of Ken Ames out of PSU here, he did a presentation at NWAC that was awesome and just dovetailed perfectly into my theoretical bent in my research so i'm like wow sorry whoops <laughs> if i hit the table on my side you can hit the table on yeah. your side and balance it back out i wonder what is is happening i don't maybe it's this something's it's... like not oh i think you yeah hit it. Uh-huh. Uh, so you were saying TJ has a theoretical bent that dovetails really yes. perfectly into yours. Yeah. So that's where I'm like, I really like to use this. Can I cite it? And can you send me your stuff, please? <laughs> <laughs> so he got back to me recently. He's like, I'm sorry it took a while. I'm like, you know, that's totally cool. Um, you got back to me at all. So that's, you know, step one. Um, not to say that he's flaky just archaeologists and academics in general have so much on their plate i know i forget to get back to people apologies to everyone i have not responded to (laughs) so yeah it's it's pretty pretty cool stuff so it's it's fun to to reach out um 
and even just generally in the academic world. Uh, I'm working on my current thesis project, which was I got the idea out of a paper that was published in 2006, and I ended up contacting the author. Nice. And was like, so this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think I want to do my thesis on it. Do you have any recommendations, ideas, or other things that you would recommend or whatnot? So I've been on and off in correspondence with him over the years, over the two years, two years. I'm going to put it at two years. It's been actually three, but we'll just call it two. <laughs> <laughs> I was in that boat too. It, it took me three. Yeah. Yeah. So should be defending in the fall. Nice. That's that's the goal. Yes. So I should have all my lab work done by mid-June, I think. Yeah. The yeah. lab isn't on fire anymore. Uh, the science oven is fixed. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do this thing. So I'm really excited. On that really exciting note, I got to make aqua regia for the first time ever the other day. What is aqua regia? Aqua regia is a, con a combination of some of the strongest acids um, in concentrate. So Holy crap. <laughs> it is three parts. I'm not going to say the recipe, but <laughs> it is, let's say, a combination of hydrochloric acid and uh, nitric acid of high concentration. Whoa. And it bubbles and turns colors. Okay. It turns red and like boils of its own volition. Um, so it's a very active solution. It is used to dissolve metals and organics. Um, however, too organic it'll explode so that'll that'll put <laughs> what do you do with it <laughs> so i'm using it actually to expedite cleaning of the teflon uh, materials that i'm using like jars and beakers and stuff so oh okay it's like otherwise it could take for the amount of stuff that i have to clean and the space that we have it would take me several weeks to get everything clean that i need to start gotcha. my analysis so it's a little expensive because those are not the concentrated acids aren't necessarily cheap. Yeah. So, but, but it's fast. It's fast. We're expediting it. We're trying to get it to go through. So that's the the nice thing. Um, I guess the, the silver lining to the fire is I get to learn all these new techniques and try different things. And rather than finding what I needed to do and following those recipes and those sort of uh, procedures. It's been a lot of like, okay, well, that's not happening anymore. What's an alternative that I can use that does the same thing? Yeah. Or that has the same effect. So things like digesting the plants. I had been using a high power microwave, which is no longer available, being as that is what caught fire. Um, and the, so I'm learning the older, quote unquote, older technique of dissolving plants in just acid. Wow. So. I fire them, burn them alive, um, <laughs> the little plants, um, pieces, and uh, then I'm going to be taking the ash, digesting it in acid, and then running it through chemistry columns, um, doing some ion chromatization to get them prepared for a run and see what they're eventually... Um, what the strontium isotopes look like wow and per finishing the whole landscape picture of how all of those values all those numbers settle on the landscape and then i have a beautiful amount of um, preliminary samples from the museum that i took last week so it's 
pretty exciting stuff. Yeah. And that's super heady too. Like it's, it's <laughs> that's a really neat uh, problem to solve. Uh, so the, the plants though, those were the things that you were going out. Those were the samples you were collecting over the past few seasons, right? Yeah. The plant samples and water samples. So I'd completed the water runs just prior to, um, or almost completed them just prior to the fire. I had some that I wanted to rerun because the error was significant. Um, so I still had some samples that I had prepared to run. Those are still waiting to be sent off because they were going to run the following Monday when yeah. they burnt down on Friday. Um, <laughs> wow. So long story short, it's, yeah, it's, it's coming along. It's nice, uh, to be in a spot where it's like, okay, I can actually start getting an accurate picture here real soon of what yeah. this actually looks like. And the really exciting part is the samples that I'm testing rather than doing finished baskets, what I've decided to, I'm going to do probably a couple of pieces of those, but the majority of what I'm really looking at sourcing are the cut off trimmings from preparing the plants for making the baskets and textiles. So these are like the manifest, it's evidence of manufacture. Yes. Rather than just the discard. Like I've used this, I've carried it with me. It is now no longer repairable. I'm just going to leave it here. Right. Um, so there's two situations in which things get deposited in the archeological record, right? You have um, manufacture and discard. Ultimately it breaks, isn't repairable whatever you're throwing it away essentially yeah and then the stuff that gets dropped or thrown away from the process of making something which are distinct um for example in it, lithics is probably a poor example but if you were to talk about lithics you get raw material which can be traded to people um but you can usually um get a different sense of trade or distance if it is the debitage from the manufacturer right versus a finished product yeah or a broken tool or a broken tool yeah so it's it's kind of it's there and it's something that hasn't been distinguished that i have seen granted i don't read all of the lithic studies out there uh, uh not a lithicist <laughs> Uh, but it's not something that I've heard a lot of. Yeah. I mean, my advisor is a lithicist and geoarchaeologist, so that's his bag. And I haven't heard a whole lot about um, how uh, any sort of contrast or if people have thought about contrasting broken or finished products and their um, find location versus their source location and how that differs from, if it differs, from the manufacturing debris. So yeah. Uh, that's really interesting because it could, speaking of baskets specifically, mm -hmm. you know, th that's something that, uh, has the potential to be dismissed as archeologically invisible, you know, the evidence yeah. of, of, uh, manufacturers. So that's really interesting to make something that is assumed to be invisible, visible. Yeah. So it's very cool. That is, that is the most exciting part. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's like, people are like, Oh, it's like just scraps. It's just, just grass pieces. I'm like, but they're, they're treated like they're flattened a specific way and bent in a manner that in cut in a manner that is consistent with human use. Yeah. And if you have little pieces, what else are you going to do with it other than just 
its trimmings, right? So that was one of the little revelations that I made early on in the project is like, actually, I think I want to study, I want to get a better idea on the manufacture process in the location of where people are like, yeah, I'm going to harvest this and how far am I going to carry it to process it? Right. Is it going to be like the nearest shelter, the nearest tree? Do I have to be in front of water depending on the processing that they're doing? Or am I going to c- collect it for a season and do it all at once at mm. this one location that's special? Um, so there's, and there's ethnographic um, data. I, I stumbled across a paper recently from the Southwest that talked a little bit about that, not necessarily um, for specifically basketry or the time period that I'm working on, but ethnographic use of caves as like women's spaces for uh, textile manufacture and other like ritual um, things interesting and like it's continuity or not non-continuity through time and i was like this is interesting <laughs> <laughs> the plot may thicken i mean it's yeah. a distance enough from here it's probably not but it's very possible like yeah. you know so anyway uh, it's a tangent and just random ways that my brain likes to go in different yeah. directions and be like oh this is could be a thing it could not be a thing but it could be a thing that's the fun part of research though is is chasing that rabbit trail to see yeah. if it is a thing it's true yeah you can have like 10 things that aren't a thing but you find one you're like yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is it or if you're like eating hotter you're just like what are things <laughs> <laughs> like what are trails? Heavy bong rip. <laughs> what are things? That's been actually questions asked quite a, often by all sorts of theoretical archaeologists. Did I tell you about the theoretical conference I went to a few years ago? No. So this was actually really cool because the women in archaeology were invited to speak nice at the theoretical archaeology conference and so i was the only one with the availability the calendar opening ironically i was also the farthest away because it was in toronto (laughs) um but it was a lot of fun actually there was it was amazing to meet people that i had never met before we did an episode um with lynn goldstein there yeah um at a bar so that was a lot of fun nice um but it was really neat to to do the talk um, that I did and that that went um, that is actually the most requested paper that I have ever written and not published <laughs> so that's pretty cool yeah and that was on uh, <clears throat> what was it exactly I'm trying to remember the title um, the idea was women in archaeology uh, in the media so from Tomb Raider to time team i believe something along those lines so we had had chelsea rose on Mm -hmm. the program previous to that um we had talked about um we had talked about lara croft and tomb raider the video game and we recently actually um we're going to be re- that's going to be our next episode that we're releasing it's discussing finally um a little bit about the movie that came out last year yeah um <clears throat> a year ago actually <laughs> <laughs> and some of it was it was on our on our radar but it was never quite priority um and there a lot could be read into that as there are more important things yeah um 
<clears throat> and also just the the movie was it was well anticipated but it wasn't it didn't do as well a lot of people didn't like it for whatever reason like in terms of uh the critics and the box yeah. office sales yeah. yeah so that was interesting um but i enjoyed it there's a lot that i picked apart yeah in our episode <laughs> but like the fact that she, like there are certain scenes that come up in the movie that were critiqued however they were critiqued in a way that it was critiquing that Lara was playing a role most often played by men like she kills a man in in one scene huh spoiler by the way <laughs> I, I think she might kill a few men though yes but <laughs> she like the course of the movie breaks this guy's neck yeah sort of like which is a very physical kind of uh yeah. finishing move yeah and that was a very physical scene yeah. as far as like it was in, intense um and then she meets her father like within 10 minutes after that like very shortly yeah or less than that i'm sure so there was some critique in that like you know she did that and just like went on with her life and i'm like well there's so much in that, especially if you're contra <clears throat> contrasting it to similar uh, concepts in the video game. It happens much earlier, yeah. and it is way more dramatic in her, like, oh, now I'm a killing machine from, like, <laughs> oh, all of the people. And, yeah. like, yeah, it's, it's a very sharp contrast in the game. They did a good job, I think, in the film developing the character into be able to do that and then meeting her father and sort of having this development and the way that they wrote her character was interesting as well yeah. um, I think it was mostly well done um, and you can hear a lot of our bantering and critiquing on that on the upcoming episode <laughs> I won't necessarily repeat it all here um, but that was that was a fun a fun thing to record finally we all like we're like okay we finally we need to sit down and watch the movie so I got my little pad of paper and put the movie on my basement. Like, all right. Nice. <laughs> nice. We're going to do this. Yeah. So. I liked it too. Uh, I went into it with pretty low expectations though. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a sucker for um, really dumb action movies. Yeah. So things, <laughs> things like that are like totally up my alley. Um, but uh, speaking of women in roles that are typically played by men, I just recently watched a movie this has nothing to do with archaeology. Okay. I was just thinking about like, <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> yeah, the, 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 when you mentioned that, uh, um, you know, Laura Croft, uh, does things that are traditionally played by men. Um, Miss Bala is the name hmm. of the movie. Gina Rodriguez is the protagonist. And, okay. uh, she is a Latina living in LA that goes to visit a friend of hers in Tijuana. And, they're just out clubbing one night and the cartel comes in and like shoots up the nightclub um, and ends up taking her and her friend hostage. But in the chaos, they're separated. Mm. And so she ends up kind of on this um, like weird path of like where she's kind of oddly brought into the cartel, but it's like the actions that she is forced to do um, keep escalating her kind of like culpability and so she it's it's almost like she reaches a point where like she is on the verge of kind of becoming one of the bad ones and yeah. uh but sh her mission is to find and rescue her friend 
and mm. is it's just like the kinds of things that she does in that movie yeah. made me think of that where it's it's kind of like she she's an action hero but also like outsmarting the cartel and like she's not a helpless victim she's like kind of you know violently blazing her path to freedom <laughs> it's like wow yeah it's, it's really well done though huh. yeah nice i'll have to look that one up i haven't heard of it neat yeah La Bala? miss bala miss bala okay cool yeah um yeah, so this is a shooting the shit episode. <laughs> I'm like, I kind of I'm like on the note of gender in movies. What about the Avengers? No, we've all heard too much about it. the Avengers. Yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I I have a hard time sitting through any movie that's three hours long. So it's uh, it doesn't feel quite that long. Uh huh. They don't really let you sit still very long. Okay. Um, so things that you should probably sit still for and do more like. Let's just say character development <laughs> um, isn't in this one. Okay. However, at the same time, you don't really need to when you're combining like seven movies into like the end of seven movies into one. Yeah. Um, so I think it almost felt, even though it's three, a little over three hours, it felt rushed. Really? <laughs> I'm going to put that out crap. there. So, uh, <laughs> it's a hectic pace for three hours. <laughs> yes. Sounds stressful. Uh, I've been keeping up with Game of Thrones though. Uh, and I'm kind of one of those people that's like, uh, like, I, I feel like there are either people who hate Game of Thrones and want nothing to do with it and people who are utterly obsessed with it. And I'm somewhere in between <laughs> where I've, I haven't seen all the episodes and, uh, I watch it only because sometimes I end up getting caught up in the excitement and like mm -hmm. uh, my, my family are really into it. Like they're mega fans and they have like yeah. all sorts of like um, fan theories about what's going <laughs> to happen next. Um, and so I've gotten into it enough to come up with my own fan theories. Okay. And most of them are like, wouldn't it be really funny if, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to share any of those because <laughs> They might be spoilers. You never know. Yeah. But, yeah. I've, I honestly have never watched a single Game of Thrones episode. Yeah. I Some of this goes into the fact that I don't generally watch TV Same. or even movies very yeah. often. So people really got to twist my arm. And that just, that's something that like, that's a commitment, especially as involved as people are into the show. I'm like, I don't think I want to get involved in that. Yeah. That just sounds like, I mean, it's years yeah of having to sit down <laughs> like, how many hours of your life is that yeah, yeah. i'm like oh, there's a lot of things i'd rather be doing yeah. than sitting and watching granted there are shows i will kind of indulge in but it's usually because they're only a few seasons long uh some of the marvel tv shows that had come out um recently like let's see if i can remember titles um i really liked luke cage that was yeah. one of the Marvel ones on uh, Netflix, I guess. I had just started watching that before they got pulled, so I didn't get too far into that yeah. one. Um, uh, Jessica... Jessica Jones? Jessica Jones. That was, was the one an that, interesting one. That one was awesome. It was brutal. It was. That yeah. one I got really sucked into um, for a couple of reasons. One is uh, my partner had watched a few episodes, and he's like, you really need to watch this. Like, it gets into... Um, processing grief at the very beginning and trauma and PTSD issues and like 
depression, depression, substance abuse, yeah, all of the things right out the gate. And it's like, this is a really great, (laughs) granted, it can be abrupt, but it was a really great and honest and valid in from what I have seen in my life um, and those around me, like a lot of what they're portray is on point. Like they're her shit and the shit that kind of falls around her is falls pretty accurate um and also the 10th doctor was in there so yeah i haven't kept up with doctor who (laughs) (laughs) so my daughter and i started watching doctor who when she was younger and her favorite doctor was always um the 10th doctor trying to remember his last name david e I'm going to have to Google this one. It was the David Doctor. (laughs) I feel really bad. Um, Because I'm probably wrong, even on that note. (laughs) What was it the other day? I'm like, something, it starts with a K, and it ended up starting with an S. Like, I was totally way off. Thank you. David. Um, David Doctor. While you're looking that up. Yes, do it. Um... So you you mentioned you don't watch much TV or movies. I'm in the same boat. Um, And so as someone who doesn't consume a lot of pop culture. um, David Tennant. David Tennant. Yes. Yes. He's in there. He plays a really bad guy and it's fabulous. Doctor number 10. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Moving on. Oh, I was just going to say like, um, so one thing that makes me happy to see other people doing the, um, the intellectual and emotional labor of fighting pseudo archaeology is yeah that's something that i just don't have kind of the capacity to really become invested in but it's something that i'm interested in and i i think the the intersection of that and public archaeology and that and kind of critical discourse yeah is where i am interested but in terms of actually like reading conspiracy theory blogs watching all the tv watching all the movies um i i just i i could never do that but like the the researchers out there the archaeologists out there who are putting in that work um you know that's that's important work and there was a whole session on pseudo-archaeology at the essays this year that sarah head had uh put together actually she chaired that that's awesome and had a panel um and it was amazing like i didn't get to go because yeah i had other obligations unfortunately at that time but everyone that i talked to and the little tidbits that i i saw and it just for one the papers the presentations were great um apparently and this is one things that really kind of made me happy and wish that i had been there is that a lot of them were done very animatedly nice so like uh some of them used a lot more media and like it was just active and colorful in its space versus some some presentations and stuff that can be kind of dry um so that was something that was really exciting to hear about but I'm totally with you. I don't have the patience or the <laughs> bandwidth to sit and read through the stuff that she slogs through. Like, yeah. we're, um, her and I are friends on, um, what is the name of that app? Uh, the 
one of the book reading apps. Goodreads? Goodreads. Yeah, yeah. we're friends on Goodreads. And the stuff that she reads, <laughs> I'm like, I would never. That sounds like absolute torture for yeah. one. But she's also, it's one of her focuses in her master's program is is going and doing this work on pseudo-archaeology, which is amazing. That and is so cool. I'm glad that she's doing it because yeah. someone, need, not just that someone needs to do it, but she is really good at it. Yeah. And I just don't have, that is like, it's so hard to see and watch and contain and process the bullshit that people spew. And that's my challenge and then digest it and put it out into a meaningful format which is what uh you know like sarah and like paulina bristupa and um uh like steph helmholfer and and Mm -hmm. david anderson like uh they all excel at yeah is making it meaningful and then digestible by other people uh i I don't have that capacity no. to do that kind of work. So I have a lot of respect for it. I, I just like, I, I don't consume a lot of, uh, pop culture. Yeah. So one of, uh, Sarah's co-hosts on, uh, Archie fantasies or archeological fantasies for its full name. Um, Jeb card recently published this book that I think we're probably going to be reviewing on the women in archeology. span Oh, nice. It's called Spooky Archaeology. And I flipped through this because she had a copy of the essays and she is slowly devouring it and highlighting and taking notes through the whole thing. Nice. Crazy to me. But it is an amazing compilation of everything from relics and magic, myths and proto history, lost continent stuff, um, haunted everything. Um, time detectives and witches and Cthulhu. Um, I love a good Cthulhu. And like, yeah, this, just this, the contents, <laughs> it blows my mind. Like there are some things I have more knowledge on in here. Like I've always been a mythology nerd. Um, and yeah. I've always liked urban legends and stuff. So I, I, I would totally dig this book, but it's, just the amount of work that goes into this because it's not something that people dig into often there aren't i can see a lot of references to like so-and-so did a lot of work in this area like people doing the work now are kind of spearheading it and really doing these original critiques yeah and they're building the kind of framework of academic rigor or or like research rigor so that you know like other people in kind of more traditional research positions can then reference that and access it and apply it in other circumstances. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting. And I think it's, it's important yeah. and it's really good for people to be adventurous and go outside the box in terms of their uh, topics of study. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and especially I think like you were saying, the importance of pseudo archeology span really hits home when you get to, really coming face to face with um white supremacism and like the viking stuff like there is a big convergence in the pseudo-archaeological community and not that they recognize themselves as such um but in the neo-nazi communities and their identity with various white ancestry especially vikings and yeah um 
Celts and and neo paganism and so, Scandinavian ancestry. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's hard to watch, um, part for a number of reasons. The women in archaeology have sort of this close to heart because Chelsea is a Viking archaeologist. Right. That is her thing. It's gender and in Vikings, um, and she has the most amazing soapbox for that so that's something um i think there's every now and then she goes off on twitter about it it's great yeah (laughs) it is amazing um i think she's had two good rants um one of which i think we did an episode on viking archaeology um so there's there's it's out there she does amazing amazing rants um, because she's very good at word choice. Like that woman knows how to <laughs> like articulate. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Sarah works with the pseudo archeology span stuff, um, but is also to my, uh, she's talked a little bit about her involvement in um, like Renaissance fair type stuff and the, um, um, I remember the name of it. Creative something anachronism. Creative. It's C- like the Society for Creative Anachronism yeah. or something. Yeah, like that. SCA. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, not to be confused with Society for California Archaeology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but SCA groups out um, in her neck of the woods. So that's something that's. It's there. Yeah. Like, and so she has. I think in some ways a crusade like a cause to fight for to be like no (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is wrong and bad and you are being wrong and bad right now (laughs) exactly so it's really neat to see the two of them when they they're able to really get on that a tangent like that um it's nice to see and i from a young age um did a lot of um reading and studying of neo-paganism and it's a fascinating subject it's a beautiful life theory um because it's short of really woo woo in that it's like <laughs> things don't just happen and everything is not rainbows like yeah you know, so i've i grew before it really became involved with the whole neo-nazi thing i grew to really love the a lot of the the theories and ideas with it and then as that started to coalesce i was like no no don't do that no that's bad that's yeah. bad um and a lot of it and there are people who are into the older scandinavian religions especially in scandinavia um that don't have anything to do with the neo-nazi movements and it's a really a shame to see these things coalesce on people that are trying to bring back pre-christian religions in various parts of the world because that sort of you know it's an older granted older and they have then benefited from at this age um the uh, roman colonialism during that era so it's anyway that's a whole other thing but um it's it's interesting to see uh how some people are fighting back on that and it's really cool to see that it's being done and i hope it gets louder yeah anybody can be anti-fascist in fact everybody should be (laughs) anti-fascist yes it's the the being able to to say something when something happens or when someone is wearing or displaying 
ideas not to be a downer but the homicides that happened on the max train yeah the stabbings stabbings yeah that was that last year the year before i think it was two years years ago, ago but the trial happened uh in the past month yeah and he uh we're not gonna name him because uh fuck nazis um the nazi dude yeah the nazi dude who stabbed people um basically like was he not basically he was ejected from the courtroom and held in contempt because he was screaming about how everybody there mm-hmm. was an abomination in his eyes in his in his political and that worldview. he was the victim yeah, yeah. and yeah it, and that's the kind of thing that is that kind of ideology just cannot get a foothold like no. if you are not actively fighting that kind of ideology then you're you know tacitly enabling that ideology and Mm -hmm. so you know to tie it back into the importance of pseudo-archaeology it's bigger than just saying no it wasn't just aliens it's it's like (laughs) yeah actually your ideas are incredibly harmful and there's Mm -hmm. a ripple effect into enabling fascism and enabling racism and you know that that harms people but it also diminishes the discipline and it also you know like we're in this really dire political and and uh economic situation where those kinds of ideologies and the kind of rhetoric that is repeated by people who are even like adjacent to those ideologies yeah are harming a lot of people yeah so yeah it's the whole yeah the aliens thing even but we've done that we've talked about that we did the alien thing i think (laughs) (laughs) aliens is racism yeah we're just gonna leave that there yeah if you have questions contact us yeah (laughs) (laughs) i've been on that soapbox too many times just because you don't know how it was done doesn't mean it was aliens no because every human is capable of doing things that you can't imagine. Yeah. If you can say it was aliens and then in the in the same breath be amazed that like an a crow can use tools. Like what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's just yes. yeah, it's just intellectually bankrupt. Uh Yeah. Truth. Cool. So I promised I would tell a story now that now that we're like an hour in. Yeah. I promised uh, some folks on Patreon and on social media that I would tell a story about what happened to the Go Dig a Hole stickers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the the context of this is uh, I ordered a new uh, print run of stickers and it took a very long time for them to get to me. And so I, I found recently that uh sticker mule the company that i had been ordering stickers from uh their owners support um racist and you know vaguely white supremacist organizations i want to know more you'll have to let me know more because i use sticker mule because they're yeah their turnaround and their their work is pretty good yeah it's a great product super easy to to order and their turnaround's great and the pricing is good too yeah and that's and so it's like the the perfect intersection of of quality price and convenience um but you know some some of the the left groups that i i uh work with uh you know are really really into um pushing uh 
U.S. U.S. made, union made, and like people of color made mm -hmm. uh, businesses. Nice. And so um, I was, you know, listening to that, and it came up that Sticker Mule was, um, you know, vaguely white supremacist, and I was like, God, but they're so good. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, well, I'll uh, I'll shop around local. Maybe it'd be more fun. And there's a sticker shop on uh, Alberta called No Limits. Mm. Um, so I went to them, and. Uh, uh, you know, not to call them out, but, but <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. They took a long time. Uh, they took a long time with with the order. And so what I had done is I ordered the rectangular stickers like the, the last mm -hmm. run were. And um, then when I showed up to pick them up, they had not actually printed them. And they're only open weird hours. It's Aww. it's like from eleven to four, uh, like three or four days during the week. And <laughs> I was like, I, I those hours. <laughs> yeah, I work a lot of hours, and those are kind of the worst hours for me to uh, yeah. try and take off. So I go. They hadn't printed them yet, and I was like, ah, okay. So I guess they took some creative liberty, and instead of doing a rectangular sticker, they did a custom die cut around the logo and so i'm indifferent about it i think it looks cool yeah it's a little larger than the last one it is and so the detail on the rocks shows up and uh i think some more details are just uh clearer um and i had seen some of the people that got stickers um you know through the the patreon support had gone through with like an exacto knife or something and, and actually done their own custom die cut oh, okay and so i was like well that's kind of cool you know if, if that's what people prefer then Ugh, a car just almost backed into the airstream trail. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I was like, oh, brace yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hazards yeah. of recording in a parking lot. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, airstream trailer in a parking lot. There's a lot of cars around us. Um, one looked like it was about to hit us. Uh, so yeah, uh, it took him a while and. Uh, then I just really didn't have the time to get back there. And mm -hmm. so, you know, one day I took a, a long lunch break, went down there to get them and they had taken the stickers back to their home office for safekeeping or whatever, mm -hmm. just so it wouldn't get, you know, shuffled around or somebody accidentally buy them yeah. um, from the shop. And so I was like, ah, oh, God. And so they offered to just drop it off at my house. And I was like, well, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, if you could just drop it off at my house, it'd be wonderful. So yeah. um, I gave him my address. I went home and I waited and I waited and I waited. And uh, I called them the next day and I was like, hey, I thought you were going to bring the stickers by yesterday. Uh, yeah. Do I need to come by today? Like, what's up with them? And they go, oh, no, we dropped them off. And I go, I didn't get them. Oh, no. I don't know what happened to them. And they go no, we totally dropped them off at your house. And I go, where? <laughs> like, where were they? Uh, so they're like, we, we put them on your doorstep. And I was like, um, totally, totally weren't on my doorstep. Um, and so uh, I w he was just like, well, if you can find them at your neighbor's place, like maybe it was one of your neighbors, if you can find them, uh, let, let me know. If you don't, I'll, I'll just reprint them for you. And so I was like, all right. And so I, I you know, after, after I hung up, I was just like over it. Yeah. And so I took Baloo for a walk and um, 
as I was coming back from the walk, one of my neighbors has this beautiful greenhouse that I admire the plants in it. Like every time I walk by and he's usually out there working on his, his garden and just puttering around in his greenhouse. And I see a go dig a hole sticker, one of these custom die cut stickers on his greenhouse. (laughs) (laughs) And he like waves to me and I go, Hey, Mir, uh, where'd you get that sticker? (laughs) So he starts talking about it. He goes, yeah, somebody just dropped him off at my doorstep. I don't, I don't have any idea who it was. And so it was so funny that, so him and his wife talked about it and they decided that the story they were going to, they, they thought had happened was a secret admirer that loves their garden made stickers about their garden because <laughs> they have a beautiful garden and and it meant like go dig a hole For and gardening. plant something so that something beautiful can grow oh that's so and sweet. i was like oh man that's awesome but those are my stickers <laughs> you can have them <laughs> <laughs> so i gave, gave them a few but uh it was just so funny like they went on this roundabout adventure and like several like false steps and stuff and and then i finally got them and then uh that's just awesome. mailed them out to the new patreon <laughs> supporters so shout out to all the new patreon supporters <laughs> We we had a, a a big burst of them uh, lately. I should nice. I should have written down all their names. I'll give them a shout out on the next episode. Sounds good. Shout out. <laughs> shout out. <laughs> well, that's about all I've got for uh, today. What about you? Um, I'm kind of curious about this whole connection to the neo Nazi thing. So this is yes. a tangent. Um, there was something that came across. I want to say it was my Facebook or Twitter feed, one of two, um, that said something about Panera. And Panera? Panera. (laughs) The shitty sandwich companies? And some of the sister companies that are owned by the same family. yes. And that the family had... The the title of the article was Panera and -and so-and-so have Nazi ties. Krispy Kreme. Krispy Kreme. That was the other one. That was it. I'm like, I guess I'm not going to eat donuts anymore. And I think I redid my comment. It must have been Facebook like four times because I actually went through and read the article. And this is one of those moments of like, make sure you actually read the article because the headline. Yeah. And not the headline because the headline is like, they're Nazis. (laughs) But the article was that they had published, that they had found that their family history involved in uh, the Third Reich. Yes. And so they were actually making reparations and large donations to causes to try and help alleviate some of the harm that their family had caused in the past. They were paying reparations. Yes. Yeah. So I was like, oh, dude, that changes everything. Like, yeah, you can't change your history, your personal history. And this is one of those lessons that ye white colonial <laughs> folks Euro American Canadian American yeah. and, and Australian folks listen up white anthropologists <laughs> you're on deck <laughs> so you're you you don't necessarily you don't control your past yeah. your your ancestry um, but that doesn't mean that your existence hasn't impacted other people and volunteering or contributing to causes that help people have who have been displaced is a good start to trying to make amends. Yeah. Um, I know there's talk occasionally about white guilt and people like 
just going all hog wild on that end or um, rebelling against it, not owning it. And it's kind of like, <laughs> first off, Americans, by and large, don't have that much of an understanding about their family history. However. Or national history. Or national history, yeah. for that matter. <laughs> so. It's not good. No. Um, but seeing that others around you are disenfranchised for whatever reason, lend a hand when you can for what you can. Yes. If you are better off because of your race, your birth, your being, birth can also mean race, uh, but also your social status that you're born into. Yeah. Um, when you are privileged, you don't realize it. That's the point of privilege or the, the, the general assumption made within privilege. You don't know it until someone points it out to you and demonstrates things and you're like oh yeah, yeah. that's a thing um or in my case i get weird racism and then non-racism or something like i get a weird mix of like we're not going to call you back because of your last name on your resume however if you show up at our office oh 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 you're okay that's <laughs> That's great. And I'm like, that, oh, you're no. a white Lopez. Yeah, yeah I'm just like, I'm, that sucks. There's, there's so much, there's so much there because I am probably the whitest person in my family aside from my daughter. So there's a lot of stuff involved as far as my physical looks, like it, realizing or having sort of a, an off experience of this is even just a taste or a tiny flick of what people have to grapple with every day. Yeah. Especially people that I'm close to. So it's interesting to see how that affects people on a, like you can get gain a perspective, I think, versus others don't, unless they're willing to hear or to listen. Um, so be willing to listen, um, be willing to help others. And yes. that itself, will help balance some of the scales and just acknowledging that just like people who are brown or black skinned they can't control their skin color yeah and their <clears throat> lack of privilege a lot of white people can't control well not a lot of no white person can control <laughs> their skin color either yeah. unless they just stay out of the sun and wear more sunscreen then they become more white or whatnot <laughs> <laughs> i don't know translucent so there's and not to excuse it, but to just acknowledge where you're at and yeah. the privilege that you have when you're in these situations and being like, okay. And that's the bare minimum too, is just oh, to yeah. acknowledge it. Um, but that's really important that, that what you said there about, um, you know, be, being willing to acknowledge it, being willing to do the work too is, yeah. is what's the most important part. And it is complicated, you know, to, you know, it, it's kind of like, how do you do the right thing? It's, it's really just be willing to acknowledge that something was wrong mm -hmm. and be willing to do some work to right it. And yeah. that's really the best you can do. Yeah. And do, you know, and that it comes with making space for yeah. voices, um, making space for others, making sure people are included. Um, and, and that's not to say that, you know, I can I can hear people going, well, I'm not going to give up my job for blah, blah, blah. I deserve it. Whatever. 
that may be. <laughs> and I'm not saying quit your job so that so-and-so right. can get hired. The point being is that there are lots of people that are qualified for every job. The idea behind what a lot of people are rebelling against recently being, um, what's the formal term? Affirmative, affirmative action. Yeah, affirmative action yeah. is trying to correct some of the past wrongs. And that's not to say, well, it hasn't been that way anymore and people are hired on their merit now. Even if that were true, it's not. Right. But even if that were true, the hiring pool is biased based on the history of our country and the where people come from and right. the privilege that they are or are not born with. And it takes generations to heal. That's affirmative action is a long process that is in an attempt to heal that historic process but it takes generations even with that and yeah. people don't see it or realize it and the spirit behind it is I, I guess to just acknowledge that anybody who can be seen as a qualified applicant to a job mm -hmm. who doesn't have that privilege actually had to work harder to get there yeah because the deck is so stacked against people without privilege, yep. you know, whatever their circumstances are. Totally. Yeah. So. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that comes full circle to uh, what we started the episode off with, with, uh, you know, how the the focuses in foci, foci, uh, foci. of <laughs> <laughs> like I'm, I, I'm the, agreeing with that the one. topics of discussion in uh, conferences and, you know, uh, publications in archaeology are working to um, make those acknowledgements and put in some of that that work mm. but we also have to acknowledge that there's still a lot of work to do and yeah. it's time to make this a priority yep yeah it's like needing to clean your room and only picking up your empty dishes and putting them in the sink yeah <laughs> do like the we, damn dishes we haven't done the resident we haven't done the dishes we haven't finished cleaning the room either yeah this is a teenager job <laughs> yeah <laughs> or putting your dirty dishes on the kitchen counter right above the dishwasher yeah oh that's my favorite uh, yeah they just like, stack right i'm like it's you could have moved them 18 inches into down, a dishwasher just down oh they're clean <laughs> so that means you need to unload it then Sorry. yeah <laughs> teenager do the work <laughs> do the work it's not hard. It yeah. just takes thought. Being an ally means doing the work. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I do a lot of work with uh, the various socialist groups. And one of the, the it's it's funny timing. One of, one of the big topics that we've been talking about lately is great white guilt. Mm. And there's, there's kind of like, <laughs> there's a popular camp uh, in a, a lot of organizing spaces where white people will come together and they will they will have a a working group or just even a, a meeting or a session to talk about white guilt mm. and there's there's kind of like two camps one camp sees talking about white guilt as kind of the beginning and the end of it you know it's like oh we talked about it we're done white guilt's over uh <laughs> and the other camp, oh. which I think is the, cor the correct camp, as, as we just talked about, is, okay, now we know what it is. Let's do the damn work. 
Mm. And, and, you know, like uh, make room for marginalized voices, make room for other people to lead the way. Yeah. Um, and then be willing to give your labor to support them. Yep. And I think we can apply those kinds of concepts in archaeology where, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, making space for indigenous voices but we also have to be willing to just do the labor and contribute financially. And, mm-hmm. you know, also with, with queer archeology span too, you know, it's like give them money and give them labor. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's a start. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, so a, a, a quick comment that kind of coalesces to the points that you made. Um, so two, two conversations in two different years and two different spaces entirely had a very similar theme that falls under the work of archaeology in my mind so one was um i think it was 2015 uh in orlando the saas yeah um there's a queer archaeology meeting uh that uh interest group meeting i think was the first one that i attended and there was conversation about sexual harassment and feeling safe because a lot of archaeology takes place in rural communities. Mm-hmm. And there was some attempt at bringing the perspective of the archaeological technician to light in a lowly bottom of the rung world and not as being seen as different from the surrounding community that you're living in for a period of time, far from your regular, you know, uh, yeah. community. Um, and and not feeling safe, and thus people leaving the field because they don't want to be put in those situations. This last, I think it was last month, month. I think it was last month. Um, I was in a lift, and my lift driver. I can't remember. I remember the conversation, and the driver was black. Um, I believe he was from the area and had lived in California for a time, I believe, and was back or something along those lines. Um, but I remember we we talked a bit because my family's from California as well, and we talked a bit about California and stuff. And um, and I was like, well, the nice thing about here is that I enjoy is being able to go outdoors and go hiking and stuff. And he's like, yeah, I really like hiking. Hiking is really great. Um, but I don't really go too far out because I was like, oh, you should go to Heart Mountain or out to the Steens or up to the Wallawas. Like, these are amazing places. And he's like, yeah, I really don't go far, that far out of the city because I don't feel safe. And that really hit me in that these two situations from two very different marginalized communities had that same standing yeah. and affect archaeologists in a very concrete way in the ability to do the work. Yes. And that though we cannot control the host communities, we can create a welcoming and um, in some ways, this is probably not the right word, but defensive community around like creating a safe bubble for people that don't normally feel comfortable in those communities they don't feel safe yeah to be out at night like making sure that that's 
a, a safe space and a safe place to be. So those are, um, and even uh, some folks that I've worked with that are um, tribal members don't like being in those same spaces as well. So it's even though they live next to it, like neighboring rural communities, they don't like going into the white towns because they get treated horribly. There's a lot of tension and animosity there. So there's, it's just really, it just kind of stuck out to me um, on those notes and the, and the work that needs to be done there in order to be able to bring in and make archaeology, as we like to say, less white. <laughs> uh, because, what was it? Somewhere someone said, wow, this is, oh, it was, oh God, what was this? I want to say it was a comment from the essay episode. And I think it was Sarah that observed that someone had said it was so white. Yeah. But archaeology is white. It really is. By and large. Yeah. Like, there isn't, like, okay, you have a random sampling of archaeologists that are actually more diverse than usual. And someone's like, it's so white in this room. This conference is so white. And it's like, well, have you been in archaeology recently? Like, when was the last conference you went to? In the last uh, 200 <laughs> years. So, you know, just in the work that needs to be done within the field, that is definitely something that really needs to be done because just starting at field school, like making that safe space for people to feel safe in a rural community that may or may not be safe for them to begin with. So, you know, understanding and acknowledging that and yeah. the privilege and being safe and feeling safe in that space. Um, so that's the end of my story rant deal <laughs> there. But Privilege yeah. is a thing that we all have to reckon with. And, and uh, you know, it's it's anthropology as a, as a discipline has a lot of... Uh, you know, it, it's funny the story that you brought up of of the family that owns Panera and Krispy Kreme. It's, it's kind of like <laughs> that's a, a good parable for anthropology. Is yeah. is like, um, I don't think anybody practicing anthropology or archaeology got into it so that they could be racist. Mm -hmm. um, but that's part of the the history. Yeah. Right. And. Uh, like you said perfectly is is we can't control the history but we can do the work to make amends for it so yeah here we are exactly yeah yeah archaeology cool <laughs> well uh i'm chris sims kirsten lopez yeah thanks for listening we'll see you next time thanks for listening to the go to a hole podcast if you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. Uh, all of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, you can also find me online. I'm very online. Uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms at Go Dig a Hole.